Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, our country's response to the novel coronavirus pandemic presents new questions. Some of those questions are about the role of the president in a crisis, or the role of governors and local leaders, or the role of international organizations, or even the role of Congress. And this particular week raised questions about all of those things. President Trump, early in the week, said that he has total authority to order the reopening of states' economies. Uh, The authority of the president of the United States having to do with the subject we're talking about is total. Though on a call with governors Thursday, Trump told them, you're going to call your own shots. And later, the administration released new guidance for local leaders to use in making decisions about relaxing social distancing restrictions. Those guidelines didn't lay out a specific timeline. Also this week, the administration announced plans to freeze funding to the World Health Organization, pending an investigation into their handling of the coronavirus crisis. Today, I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted. And at a news conference midweek, Trump threatened to force Congress to adjourn so that he could fill some vacant positions in his administration without Senate approval. The Senate should either fulfill its duty and vote on my nominees or it should formally adjourn so that I can make recess appointments. Together, these three moments illustrate a president suggesting ways to exercise increased power and to limit checks on his authority. So, naturally, this week we found ourselves asking, can he do that more than once? And we heard from our listeners wondering, too. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. We'll start this week by tackling Trump's urging governors to reopen their state's economies. Now, we've addressed on this show before the complicated relationship between states and the federal government, especially in times of crisis. In fact, in our March 26th episode that looked at how states and the federal government can enforce stay-at-home orders, we learned that the president has no formal authority to order the states to issue stay-at-home orders or to reopen businesses. But it doesn't mean that he has no influence on those decisions. To help dive deeper into what the president can do when it comes to pushing states to reopen, I turn to Claire Finkelstein. Claire's a University of Pennsylvania law professor and the director of a nonpartisan institute, the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law. Some of her recent work examines moral and legal issues relating to state sovereignty. So President Trump spoke this week at a news conference and referring to restrictions that states have imposed to fight COVID-19, Trump said, quote, the authority of the president of the United States having to do with the subject we're talking about, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. It's total. The governors know that. So let's start with this. Is that statement by the president correct? Whose decision is it to open the states? Well, first of all, there's the 10th Amendment, which is the backbone of state authority. And the 10th Amendment basically says that any power that is not reserved to the federal government remains with the states. 
And what that means is that state governors have the ability to protect the health, welfare, and safety of its citizens. We have seen that tested many times before. Now, interestingly, in the civil rights era, what we saw is the federal government asserting the rights of individuals to, for example, integrate schools and integrate businesses. And in that case, it's very different because the federal government is asserting the rights of individuals, which are protected by the amendments to the Constitution. In this case, however, there is no claim of individual rights on the side of the federal government. And Congress has not acted to give the president the authority to defeat the governor's stay-at-home orders. So there isn't any federal law that would give the president the power to issue executive orders that go against the stay-at-home orders of the governor's. Essentially, then, we've covered a version of this before on the show. The authority here about opening and closing businesses and schools in each state lies with the state and not with the federal government, fundamentally because of federalism, the way our system is designed. But the president is also incredibly influential. The things he says, of course, matter. So how can the president's messaging and communication in a time like this influence the decisions that each state makes? The president's greatest power here lies in the power of persuasion. And we already see that his stance regarding stay-at-home orders has had an impact. For example, yesterday, the state legislature in Pennsylvania, the Senate, voted for a bill to countermand some of the governor's stay-at-home order. Now, the governor has said that he'll consider the bill, but I think he's unlikely to sign it. But what we see here is that the president has had an impact on the way that people think about these stay-at-home orders. We also see protests against state stay-at-home orders. Those people are being influenced by the president's stance on these matters. On Thursday, Trump told governors on a call, he said, quote, you're going to call your own shots about when to open their respective states' economies. But just to clarify, could he have called the shots for them anyway? No, the president has no ability to set himself against a governor's stay-at-home order. I mean, if you look at all the grounds that a president has for exercising his authority, what are they? He could be acting on the basis of a federal statute that Congress passes. Here, there's been no action from Congress that would give the president that authority. He could be acting on his inherent Article II powers But there has been no understanding of inherent Article II powers that would give the president the ability to countermand governor's orders designed to protect that state's health. And that's about it. You know, interstate commerce, maybe. But that would be a very difficult basis for the president to make an assertion of authority here. So he he cannot issue executive orders to do anything unless he has a basis in federal law for doing so. Okay, so then beyond some of the the legal ways we just discussed and beyond some of his rhetoric, even though he can't force the states to lift stay-at-home orders, the president can affect the decisions of these states about whether or not to reopen and when. For example, Trump has said that he would, quote, hold the governors accountable for their plans to open their state's economy. What might that mean in, in terms of presidential power? How can he hold the governors accountable? Well, he can make life very difficult for governors if they don't go along with his views. So 
the president has an awful lot of control over the $2 trillion fund that Congress has created to bail people out in this pandemic. Governors will be jockeying for different shares of that fund for their particular businesses. And that is one way in which he wields a fair bit of power in this situation. He also just has this bully pulpit. And when he starts calling out governors and getting into a tangle with them, it makes life very difficult for those governors. We know that Andrew Cuomo has actually threatened to sue the federal government for usurping state power, showing that he feels the need to fight back against these claims that the president is making. So we know that the president wields a lot of power with regard to how people in each governor's state see the governor and, of course, the dispensation of funds that the president has a fair bit of control over. Yeah, I think Trump has even gone so far as to say if some states refuse to open, I would like to see that person run for re-election, meaning the governor. So, so yes, it seems like he's wielding some political influence here. Now, pivoting to health and safety, which is, of course, the most important factor in whether or not life can resume with some normalcy. The president, along with the CDC, have issued these guidelines for how states can safely begin to reopen their economies. How much power does the president have to affect those CDC recommendations for when and how we should reopen these states? Well, that's very hard to tell. We know that the president at one point suggested that he might fire Dr. Fauci, uh, for example. And so he does control who holds what offices and so can put a lot of pressure on the CDC Uh, to fall into line with his program and with his timetable. If we're really going to resume some version of normal life, some health measures need to be put in place across the country to ensure that everyone is safe. And chief among them is increased testing. Now, many states have said that they just don't have the ability to implement large scale testing. So how can the federal government play a role in a state's ability to get test sites running and be able to figure out how to track that testing? Are there ways the president can speed up the ability of states to reopen safely and with effective testing mechanisms in place? All of that requires enormous coordination between the federal government and the states. It requires science. It requires careful coordination with the CDC and possibly with sources of technology like cell phones. We've talked about uh, a lot about con- contact tracing in the last few days and how that could be implemented. That's a place where the president could be putting his efforts into really making sure that we have solid testing and that those efforts are coordinated with the ability of states to to track who is infected, who is immune, and so on. And so the president could impact the ability of states to open up sooner. The one place where the president really does have the ability to force businesses to stay open is in using the Defense Production Act to make sure that businesses are manufacturing things that we need in the pandemic, like ventilators. He's done that on a very limited basis. And that's something that he could be using to selectively keep businesses operating and boost the economy, in fact, by marshalling all forces that can be helping to make personal protective equipment and other things that we need. 
Now, each state obviously needs emergency funding to get through this crisis. Does the president have the power to withhold emergency funding to a state that doesn't agree to lift its shelter-in-place orders or reopen businesses? And I mean emergency health funding. That's a very, very good question. Under the Stafford Act, the president has the ability to hasten funding and to cut through a lot of red tape to get help to states that need it. So I can imagine that the president could, in effect, use the Stafford Act to prioritize certain states over other states. He could direct FEMA to withhold aid to states, I suppose, where they consider the pandemic less urgent and creating less of an emergency situation. But whether or not he can selectively withhold aid based on wanting to engage in retribution against governors who aren't falling into line with his program is highly questionable. And I think that that would be the basis for a lawsuit from the governors, frankly. So let's pivot to talk about the relationship between the federal government and private business in this moment. We touched on it with the Defense Production Act a little bit, but does the president have the power to offer financial incentives to businesses that agree to reopen on a timeline he prefers? Can a business reopen despite orders from the state government? Potentially, the president does have the ability to offer incentives to companies that fall into line with his timetable. So that pandemic bailout package that Congress passed contains $500 billion for hard-hit businesses like the airline industry. So the president has retained a fair bit of control over that fund. Under the deal struck with Congress, the president is supposed to be overseen in his actions by a committee of inspectors generals. But since he has Uh, fired the inspector general who was to lead that committee, it's not clear how much power that committee is going to have. Okay, so we've covered a lot here. What informal pressures have I missed? What other ways can the president influence when and how a state chooses to reopen? The most persuasive thing that he could do is based on actions that he could take to help get clear testing up and running, contact tracing, and working with the governors to make sure that their healthcare workers are protected so they are not continuing to spread this virus. Now, what we do see is that Republican governors have been more subject to the president's views on this matter. Whether or not the pressure on Republican governors to open up earlier will then set a tone for all the governors is a question that remains to be seen. But that is one way that the pressure the pressure can be put on governors across the board. Now, given all of that, do you expect some legal battles to emerge in the next few weeks when the president and some governors are at odds? Yes, there are already uh, legal battles. So there have been lawsuits filed by businesses that have been judged by their governors to be non-essential. So again, in my home state of Pennsylvania, a maker of handbells sued Governor Wolf because they were judged to be a non-essential business. It is a class action where other non-essential businesses have joined in. So it focuses on the selectivity of what businesses can stay open and and which have to remain uh, shuttered. And there have been, and I expect, more lawsuits around that question. 
if federal courts start issuing judgments that say, yes, it violated your rights under federal law to have the governor shut you down, then we then it's a different ballgame because then the federal government would be in ordering businesses to reopen or trying to do that. They could be just enforcing uh, a judgment of a federal court, and that would put the president in a very different position. Interesting. So it seems worth saying here that ultimately at this point, no government official can force individual Americans to go to restaurants or stores. And perhaps the real choice about when a state's economy resumes is ultimately up to the people to decide, right? And the American people really span the spectrum on this. Some people are afraid to leave their homes and others, as you mentioned, are out protesting to get back to work. Well, that's exactly right. And we, you know, we could end up with a situation that resembles Sweden right now, where the Swedish government has decided not to put stay-at-home orders in place, except for at-risk individuals. Now, I mean, they have much higher rates of infection than the rest of Europe or parts of the rest of Europe. And they have, you know, taken a very different approach. Whether or not it works out well for them in the end, we, we will see. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Once you have a law professor on a Zoom call, you have to ask all the can he do that questions you can. Before I let her go, I asked Claire about the president's suggestion that he could adjourn Congress and in doing so, force through a bunch of his nominees to positions in government without approval from the Senate. The president cited a never-exercised constitutional power to shut down Congress if the House and the Senate are in disagreement over adjourning. The threat pushes both the executive and legislative branches into uncharted territory. I asked Claire for her legal analysis about the president's power here. It's up to Congress whether or not to adjourn. The president does have the ability to make a recess appointment when Congress is not in session if there is an emergency basis for doing so, and I suppose the president could claim that under these circumstances, but the decision whether or not to recess lies with Congress alone. Okay, so to speak specifically to this Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution, where the president, it expresses that the president has some power to adjourn Congress, but under these very specific circumstances. I have the quote here. It says, he may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them. And in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. So it's your assessment that that doesn't necessarily apply. That does not apply under these circumstances. He can convene Congress for sure. So he can say, look, we have an emergency. I need Congress to convene. But that phrase suggests that he can only adjourn Congress in case of disagreement between the houses, which is causing having a deleterious effect on the country. So now this has, to my knowledge, never been used before. I'm not aware of any instances where this has been used before. I think, you know, it would be very much resisted by members of Congress, and he would not have a very strong claim 
I think, for saying that the disagreement between the houses is so serious that he needs to invoke this constitutional power. A third moment this week that left us wondering about the limitations of presidential power happened Tuesday. Trump announced that he plans to freeze funding to the World Health Organization, a United Nations agency, until a review of their coronavirus response is conducted. The decision was met with pushback from some who suggest Trump's allegations against the WHO sound like an effort to deflect criticism of his sluggish response to the virus. But others beyond the White House share in criticism of how the WHO handled China, suggesting that the organization amplified Chinese claims about case numbers without suggesting that they could be inaccurate, and went on to lavish China with too much praise over their response. Emily Rahala is a Washington Post foreign affairs correspondent. She explained the complicated dynamics at play when the U.S. president decides to withhold funding to an international health organization during a health crisis. I want to start by asking, what is the normal funding relationship between the U.S. and the World Health Organization? So the funding has two components. One is called the assessed contribution, which is a portion of the total U.N. funding that each country pays basically according to its size and its wealth. And then there's another part of it that's called the voluntary contribution. So I think the State Department said, all told, this figure for the United States is about $800 million a year. And typically, what is the money used for? So WHO is front and center right now on this emergency response level. But the bulk of what it does is really advocate for access to health care, access to essential medicines, and advocate for basic health care around the world. Most of the U.S. funding is not going to something like emergency COVID response, but to things like polio eradication, health and nutrition, tuberculosis, and HIV. So the most of the money is going towards basic health. Do they have the power to force countries to comply with certain actions in certain situations, or is their power fairly limited? That's a great question. Basically, WHO is a member state organization. So that means that its members are countries, and those countries volunteer and agree to be part of this organization. When it comes to emergency response, there's a set of rules called the International Health Regulations that are supposed to guide how an emergency response takes place. And those rules lay out things like when you need to report an emerging infection, what you need to tell WHO. But the challenge for the organization is it's pretty much voluntary. If a country decides that it doesn't want to share information, WHO can coax them, it can press them, it can even call them out publicly, but it can't compel them to do anything. When we're talking about the president freezing funding to WHO, does the president need approval from Congress to take this action or can he freeze this WHO funding on his own like he seems to have done at this moment? This is very much up for debate. Right after Trump announced this move, we heard from Democrats that they plan to challenge this, that they saw it as illegal and as something that should be overturned. They basically argued this was not his authority. This is a question that I expect will be fought over in the in the weeks to come. And I think it's it's very much an open question so far. Let's turn specifically to WHO's actions during this pandemic. What have they done successfully since the coronavirus outbreak began? So over the last two months or so, I've been talking to a lot of people who are involved or are closely watching WHO's response. And there's pretty broad agreement that they have done some things well. 
they have very quickly um, convened experts. They've convened scientists and doctors and researchers all around the world to move forward the research agenda to promote testing. They got a test to 70 labs around the world very quickly. The U.S. chose not to use that test, but WHO did do it. So there's a strong sense that their technical work in this emergency has for the most part been strong. Can you just explain why the U.S. refused that test from the WHO? Typically, when it comes to emergencies, the CDC develops its own test. And that's because the CDC believes that it is the best equipped to do so, that it has the best scientists and the best researchers and the best resources in the world to quickly develop highly effective, reliable, sensitive tests. So it wasn't unusual for the CDC to decide to go with their own test. What was unusual was that the CDC test didn't work. And then that created a situation where countries all over the world were successfully using the WHO test and the United States was not using any test for a period of time. Okay. And yet, despite some of the successes of the WHO, Trump has said he will freeze the funding pending an investigation of their response. So what do we know from reporting about why Trump has taken this step? Why? What are Trump's reasons for deciding to choose to freeze this funding? So Trump has latched on to some criticism of the organization that has been circulating really since late January and early February. And the heart of that criticism is that WHO has been too friendly to China in its response to this crisis. Our reporting suggests that there are elements of truth to this. In early January, WHO was repeating and amplifying Chinese claims about the number of cases and the nature of the virus rather uncritically. Even people who generally support the WHO, current and former advisors, told me that they were really surprised to see WHO basically vouching for Chinese data when there are perhaps reasons to be skeptical. Again, if they saw problems with Chinese data, they didn't have a lot of tools to go get better data. China was stopping them from coming into the country. But what some current and former advisors have said is that WHO could have done more to express skepticism about that data. In February, they also got into a little bit of hot water for their repeated praise of China, which is something uh, Trump has mentioned as well. Obviously, praise in itself is, is not necessarily a problem. Certainly, you need to use a little bit of flattery in diplomacy. But the criticism that is coming not just from the White House, but from other corners as well, is that the over-the-top flattery of China gave the world a false impression that China had the situation under control when they did not. And this is the narrative that Trump, that has been circulating for a while, that Trump has in the last week or so really adopted and amplified. And just to be clear, what was the World Health Organization praising China for? They were they were praising Chinese response. We had the head of the organization, Dr. Tedros, repeatedly saying not just that China had the situation under control, but that he saw no signs of a cover-up. He went to Beijing and met with Chinese President Xi Jinping and, you know, praised him personally, praised the Chinese system. And so what critics are saying is he didn't need to go that far. He could have stuck to the numbers, expressed some skepticism, and been diplomatic, but not so over the top in his praise. So then what is Trump hoping to learn from this investigation? What evidence would make him want to reinstate funding versus freezing it more permanently? That's not clear to me at this time. I think that there's a lot of 
public information so far from our own reporting and from others that sort of lay out the timeline here of what was known when, where skepticism might have been advised, and where WHO moved with sort of perhaps appropriate levels of caution. I think the idea is that Trump and his allies hope to find some sort of incriminating link between WHO's leadership and China. But so far from our own reporting, we haven't seen evidence of that. And just for my understanding, who conducts this investigation? Who leads it? It's not clear yet how exactly this investigation will proceed. I believe the president floated the idea of a White House investigation. And I believe there's also some lawmakers who are pursuing this. Regardless of potential missteps by WHO, what are the consequences of the U.S. cutting off funding during an ongoing crisis to this international health organization? WHO relies on funding to deliver both the emergency response that it's doing right now and ongoing programming on issues like infectious disease, vaccinations, essential medicines. We saw a pretty strong reaction after this announcement was made that this would have a potentially devastating impact on WHO programming. From the public health community, certainly there's worry about what this will mean for those doing frontline work. We saw Bill Gates uh, tweet about it and a bunch of other people who are involved at a grassroots level saying this could be really bad, particularly for the developing world. So then as you continue reporting, what are you looking for? What do you think the next steps will be in decisions around this funding, in statements from the World Health Organization? What do you expect to see? Well, the first thing is the question of what this investigation looks like, who conducts it, what's the timeline, and how does that mesh with the disbursement of these funds. So I think the first thing we'll see on the U.S. side certainly is a political fight over how this is going to be handled. The really critical question is how this impacts the WHO's ongoing work on the pandemic and on other issues. Dr. Tedros, the head of the organization, said that they're already reviewing their programming, trying to figure out what the impact of this decision would be, assuming that it does go ahead. And then, of course, we see other organizations, foundations, other countries trying to step in and see if they can sort of backstop that funding gap to try and stop a disruption in the provision of essential emergency services. All right, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Just a reminder that The Washington Post has all of the information you need to stay on top of the latest coronavirus news. Sign up for our coronavirus newsletter to get our latest reporting and FAQs to keep yourself safe. Any article you click in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information for free every day on our homepage at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. You can also use the Post's podcasts, of course, to stay informed without being overwhelmed. Always free online or on any podcast app. Find them all at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. All of those links are available in the episode description. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the congenial Carol Alderman and Ariel Plotnick, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. Hold up. 
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Mm -hmm.